You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are a God who is at work renewing all things, and you are a God who invites us into rest. Help us to taste your rest in this time together. Pour out your Holy Spirit from the reading and the preaching of your word. Illumine it that we might not be those who simply hear, but who respond with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church family. It's so great to see all of you and uh, welcome those of you who are joining us online. Um, really uh, excited and have been really learning a lot from this series that we're in called Practicing the Good Life. Practicing the Good Life. What we're all in the midst of is trying to return to some semblance of normalcy after 15 plus months of a whole lot of rupture. And what we're inviting you to do in this series is take a little bit of time this summer just to pause. Uh, And before you just jump and snap right back into the way that you were living before, to ask yourself some hard questions. Uh, Ask yourself some questions about the way you were living before. What if some of the ways we were living before weren't actually good? What if there are some things that we shouldn't go back to? What if there are new ways to order our lives and arrange our time and our priorities in a way that would be so much better and might even be, dare I say it, abundant. Jesus is inviting us to think about practicing the good life, doing it differently. One of the things I think that we have to talk about in this series is our work. Uh, And not just our work, the patterns of work and rest, the way that we arrange our daily and weekly and even monthly lives. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but at least in the beginning of the pandemic, I heard so many people say, you know what, this is terrible, this is scary, but it's also just so good to get some rest (laughs) and not have to drive all over the city and do a thousand different activities. You know, that's pretty sad if it takes a global pandemic for us to finally rest. (laughs) There is something really out of whack with our work. So many people who report feeling exhausted, So many people who feel like they have so little margins, people who are constantly, when you ask them how they're doing, they say, busy, y'all, busy is not a feeling. (laughs) It just masks the misery that is beneath the surface. A pastor out in Portland named A.J. Swoboda says this, uh, we have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it resonates. If we don't establish saner rhythms in the way that we do our work and rest, if we don't figure out some life patterns that curb our unbridled activity and calm our compulsive busyness, then we will not make it. You will not make it. Your body will not make it. Your relationships, your family, our church will not make it. There's got to be a better way. And the good news is that there is. And we learn it from our master. Jesus. He has a better way to teach those that he loves and that follow him. So I want to look at a little story that maybe you haven't really paid much attention to, 
But it, I think it teaches us a lot about this pattern of work and rest that Jesus is inviting us into. So let's read Mark chapter 6, verses 6 through 13 and 30 through 32. So I'll read it. It says this, Jesus was going around teaching from village to village, and he called the 12 disciples to himself, and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So the disciples went out. They preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons. They anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And so the disciples gathered back around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a desolate place. So here's the scene. Jesus has these 12 disciples he is not just teaching them, but now he commissions them. He actually gives them a portion of his Holy Spirit. He gives them authority over the evil powers of the world. And he sends them out to do work in his name. And so they do it. They go out two by two. They're preaching. They're healing. They're casting out demons. I mean, really heavy stuff. And they come on back to Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, it was amazing. It worked. You told us to do it. And we did it. And amazing stuff happened. I mean, you could just imagine them like gathered around Jesus like little children, you know, jumping for joy, so excited about they, what they, you know, were able to do. You know, they were like, Andrew was, was preaching and all these people repented. And John, you know, he like walked up to this guy who was blind and put his hands on him and he healed again. And Simon was, you know, there was this guy possessed by a demon. He told the demon to leave it and left. And they're just, you know, they're, and you could see Jesus just sitting there smiling, nodding his head. And then they finished their report. And they are ready. They're ready for the next set of marching orders. They're ready for their next assignment. They are ready. These guys are ready to change the world. And Jesus looks at them and he says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place. Get some rest. And you can, I mean, you can just picture their deflation, right? It's like, Jesus, come on, man. We've got some momentum. I mean, haven't you ever read like the Harvard Business Review? Like this is when you act, right? At the peak, this is when, when you are at, when you've got, the, this is when you scale it, right? This is when the investors are ready to pile on. When you've got this kind of energy and momentum, like this is when we get this thing going, Jesus. But Jesus is like, nope. He's not interested in their successful ministry reports. He's not interested in their stories about how awesome and powerful they were. He is simply interested in rest. He says, let's go do nothing. Now, if you study Jesus' life in ministry, you'll find that this is happening a lot. Like, right as stuff starts getting really awesome, Jesus just bounces. He just walks away. <laughs> you know, just as things get really hype, really successful, lots of people really excited, Jesus just withdraws. Uh, at his baptism, you know, the spirit comes down. It's this powerful moment of commission. Jesus is anointed as savior of the world. And he goes out into a desert. You know, even, even his life, his whole life, like he spends 30 years doing nothing but hanging out in his pop shop. And then he does three years of ministry and then he's done. And you're like, Jesus, if you could just started sooner, like you'd have been way more productive, man. Like we could have ended this thing a lot sooner. 
But no, this is Jesus's, what's going on is that he's showing us a better way. He's showing us the abundant way, a different way of the good life of ordering work and rest. I'm going to use my little uh, flip chart here. I hope you guys can all see it okay. Um, But I think that what we're seeing is we're seeing Jesus actually embody one of the great deep uh, secrets that God has baked into the order of reality. Um, This is a a little diagram that my friend Doug um, taught me. But if you think of this as a semicircle, almost like a pendulum, a swinging pendulum that goes back and forth. When you read the first two chapters of the Bible, which is this amazing poem that is describing uh, the the work of God's uh, creative genius, it just begins with this day of days of day after day of God creating beauty. He creates goodness. He creates life. He creates water. He creates light. He creates sea creatures and birds and vegetation and trees, and he pronounces all of it good. And then on the sixth day, kids, do you remember what he did on the sixth day? Who did he make on the sixth day? Any of y'all remember? People. He made us. He made man and woman. It says in Genesis 1.27, so God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so it says for the first time that God's image or his imprint is on something. You know, like when you put your hand into a memory foam mattress or pillow and the imprint of your hand just kind of stays there for a few seconds? Like God has put his imprint on us. We bear his imprint. What does that mean? Part of what that means is that we, like God, are called into the good work of ordering creation. And so God works, we work. God gardens, we garden. God creates order out of chaos, we create order out of chaos. Whether it's the chaos of a dirty diaper, or the chaos of a weedy garden, or the chaos of a bunch of numbers that need to be put in an Excel spreadsheet. God calls us to partner and reorder the world with him. And this is part of what we were made to do, that work of partnering with him in creation. Whether you are a parent or an artist or an architect or a plumber or an accountant or a teacher or a nurse or a student or a manager or a salesperson, your work reflects the image of God in you. And remember, all this is before the fall. Work is good. It's not curse. It's good. Work will be around in the new creation for all eternity. I probably won't have a job. You know, Scott Armistead, who's a physician, probably won't have a job. Uh, but all the rest of y'all will. And so I got to find a new one. Um, <laughs> anyway, work is good as part of what we were made to do. Now, but look at what happens next. This is what is so fascinating. Humanity has their marching orders. They know what to do. They're supposed to rule and steward all creation, co-create, co-order, co-sustain the world with God. They're ready, get set, and then the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So this is very significant for a couple of reasons. One, because it says that God rested. Now, God is all-powerful. Does God need to rest? No. So why does he do it? because he is just stopping from his work to delight in all that he has made. He's just simply delighting in the goodness of the beauty of the created order that he has just brought forth from his heart. He's just stopping to enjoy goodness. But the other reason why it's so significant is because God is showing Adam and Eve and all of humanity the way that life is meant to work. Think about it. After the very first day they have commissioned for the work, he calls them into rest. 
Gives them their marching orders day six, calls them to rest day seven. They rested first, then they were called out to do the work that God has given them to do. This is very different than the way that we think about rest. We often think that we work hard and then we rest from our work, but in the pattern of the biblical order, we rest and then we, we actually work from our rest, not rest from work. Did you hear that? We work from the rest rather than rest from the work. And so we see this pattern begins in the order of the world in which we begin with rest and then we swing like a pendulum into work. And then when the work is finished, we swing right back into rest. And this is in the ancient Jewish cycle, this is how they actually order their lives. And so in the Jewish day, the day begins at sunset. You begin the day with detachment. You begin the day with, with disengagement. You begin the day with sleep. And then you rise, you enter into the work, and then as the daylight fades, you swing back into rest and begin again. They order their weeks this way. They begin with Sabbath. They begin with withdrawing, disengaging from the work, which was a super countercultural act in the world around them. And then they swing into work for six days, and then they swing right back into rest again. Their years were ordered this way, seven festivals during the year in which they chose to stop and disengage from their work. Every seventh year, the fields lie fallow. Every 49th year, a jubilee. Everything returns and rejoices in rest. The entire order of their life arranged around this simple pendulum of beginning in rest, swinging into work, and swinging back into rest again. Now, this is, of course, not the way we do things. Human beings have always struggled to get this rhythm right. It seems especially difficult for us modern people to get the work thing right. The significance of our work in the modern world has become really out of whack. So much of our personal worth and significance is now grounded in our work, what we do. We even ask little kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? Your identity rests in what you do, little child, and it is up to you to figure out what your ultimate identity will be. Please don't say that to a child, but you're essentially saying it, right? <laughs> and what has made this even worse over the last 20 years is that we have more pressure, fewer boundaries, and less stability in our work than ever before. And we're never unplugged. We're always carrying around this tech with us all the time. That, mind you, was created in order to simplify our lives and reduce the pressure of work, but instead has had the exact opposite, so there is no more margins. Work fills up our every hour, and everyone feels pushed to their limits all the time. And so what often happens is we are engaged, we swing into work, and then we just keep on going. <laughs> we keep on going, and then what eventually happens is whoosh, crash. You do something stupid. You have a medical emergency. You explode at your kids. We get out of this rhythm, and the rhythm gets us. This happened to me, y'all. You know, I have always been a really in, a pretty intense type A person who is really focused on getting a lot done and being as productive as possible. I was this, you know, when I was in college, I tried to train myself in polyphasic sleep training, which is what they do for the Navy SEALs, so that they can sleep less and get more done. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm sick in that way. Um, uh, in 2005, at 27, started working here at Third as an associate pastor. And then a few years later, we decided to plant a church in the East End while I was still pastoring as an associate pastor here. So there were about five or six years where I would be here for four services in the morning, often preaching, 
and then would go, as soon as the service was done, I would go down, set up 250 chairs, set up a sound system, get the service ready, preach a different sermon on a different text, and then start the whole thing over again. I would take a day off, but I wasn't resting. I was just doing the unpaid work that I wasn't doing the rest of the days. And I knew that rest was important, but like, I thought, you know, I'm young, I'm energetic, and I'm really important. And so, you know, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't have time, you know, to, to do that rest. So one day, one Saturday morning, I wake up, and I have a little sore throat. I say, no big deal, push through. That's what I do, push through. And I had a wedding that day to officiate. Push through, get to the through wedding. So the middle of the wedding, I'm starting to feel kind of bad. Middle of the homily, pass out. Long story short, I end up in the emergency room. Emergency tracheostomy in my throat. Rapidly growing peritonsal abscess in my throat from an infected case of strep. Moved it, doctor comes in and says to Sarah, he had 90 minutes before he was dead. I was out for six weeks, unable to do anything. And even then, I was in my bed with my laptop, sending emails, what do you need me to do? Do I need to write a sermon for you? Do I need it? And they're like, nah, bro, we're good. We don't need you. <laughs> it took, y'all, a near-death experience for me to realize that I had been thumbing my nose at my limitations, ignoring the very order of creation, pushing against the grain of the universe. And when that happens, of course, you get serious splinters. And years later, I read this quote from Walter Mueller, which I found very convicting. He said, if we do not allow for a rhythm of rest in our overly busy lives, illness becomes our Sabbath. Our pneumonia, our cancer, our heart attacks, our accidents create Sabbath for us. So how can we order our lives differently? Well, God has given us an amazingly practical thing, Sabbath. Sabbath is the key practice of rest. God is so serious about this that it's one of the Ten Commandments. Y'all, this is the only spiritual discipline that is included in the Ten Commandments. God says in Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It gets more real estate than almost any other of the Ten Commandments. It puts it right up there with idolatry, murder, stealing, committing adultery. In other words, being a workaholic is as bad as being a murderer. And yet we don't take it seriously. We treat the fourth commandment like it was like the mattress tag that says, do not remove under penalty of law. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Nobody takes that seriously. It's so stupid, right? But no, God, it's in the Ten Commandments. Why? Why is it so important? Well, first of all, because it's one of the ways, like I've already said, that we image God, right? God rests, we rest. Jesus rests, we rest. This is one of the ways, if true, if true godliness is the imitation of God, then, to, then this is one of the ways that we pattern our lives after God. And you might say, well, you know what? I'm an extrovert. I don't really need to do that. Or I'm a CEO. I'm really important. Or I've got two young kids. It's really impractical right now. Are you God? Because God's life is way more complicated and overwhelming and busy than yours. So I'm pretty sure that you can rest too. So uh, another thing is, um, Sabbath lets God be God and you be you. In Exodus 20, when the verse 9, after this verse, God says, For you should rest because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and you didn't. Well, he doesn't say that, but that's essentially what he's saying. So Sabbath is a powerful reminder to us that God is God, that he alone is the creator and sustainer of everything, and we're not. We're just creatures. We can't do everything. We can't be everywhere. We're not omnipotent. You can't be two places at once. 
We have limits. You can't actually even multitask. It's just not that they, only God can do that, right? We have finite capacities. An unwillingness to stop and rest is an unwillingness to be human, to live within the limits of your humanity, and it is a highly outrageous and rebellious form of idolatry to refuse to rest. Because to rest says, God, you are God and I am not. You care for me. You care for the world. I can stop and let you be the king. One last thing, though. Sabbath is also a declaration of our freedom. In Deuteronomy 15, when God gives the Ten Commandments a second time because they didn't listen the first time, he says, keep the Sabbath because remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord delivered you from bondage. So the Israelites had gone 400 years without a Sabbath, 400 years without a vacation. You don't get one when you're a slave. But God rescued them and set them free, and now their practice of the Sabbath was a declaration week after week of their freedom, that we are not slaves. And it's meant to be the same for us, that when we rest, it is a declaration of our freedom, saying we are not slaves to our bosses, to the spreadsheet, to the market, to the demands, to the schedule, to other people's expectations. We are not slaves to the Western gods of accumulation or accomplishment. We are not defined by what we do, what other people think, what we can accomplish. We are free. When we take a rest, we are declaring to the world that before we are human doings, we are human beings. Our, our identity is grounded in the truth of our belovedness before we work, before we do we rest, and our identity is God's beloved. So what a gift Sabbath is. It's an invitation from God into a life of trust, of joy, of fruitfulness. It's a life of rest. So how do we practice it? Well, even though Sabbath does refer to a literal setting apart of a day, it's much more than a day. I personally believe and have come to believe that Sabbath is about embodying a different way of life, a life that follows the rhythms of work and rest. So Ruth Haley Barton says this, Sabbath keeping is more than just taking a day of rest. It is a way of arranging our life to honor the rhythm of things. Work and rest, fruitfulness and dormancy, giving and receiving, being and doing, activism and surrender. It is a way of being in the world. It's a way of living our lives differently. And it requires great effort and great intentionality. Like the writer of Hebrews says, make every effort to enter the rest. It takes hard work to rest because everything about our, our own identities and our own culture uh, militates against it. And so it takes great intention to do this. And so I just want to share a couple of, of ways that we can do this. And I, like Esther said last week, am, as you know, a very, very bad student. And so I'm <laughs> talking to myself here, okay? So I want to talk about just a few things of daily patterns, weekly patterns, and even seasonal patterns. So daily. Even on days that we're working, I believe that God calls us into patterns of Sabbath. Um, we begin the day, if you want to begin the day like the Jews, Jewish people did, we begin the day in rest. We begin the day with sleep. And sleep is actually a very important part of Sabbath because it releases uh, growth hormones that help tissues grow and forms new red blood cells and delivers oxygen to the brain and promotes bone, bone growth and restores and rejuvenates the body and the mind. But even more than that, sleep is a powerful Sabbath practice because in going to sleep, you are literally checking out of your consciousness and reminding yourself that God is sustaining your life. You cannot get stuff done while you sleep. Uh, you can't send emails. You can't tell your children what to do. You, you, are, you are checked out of the world and you, to begin the day with sleep, as the ancient Jewish people did, is to begin the day in a posture of trust. As the Psalm 3.5 says, I lie down in sleep, I wake again 
because the Lord sustains. So we begin the day with sleep. And then as we wake, uh, we begin to even order our work days differently. I believe that you cannot live the good life while addicted to speed, productivity, superficiality, and distraction. Um, N.T. Wright says, it's only when we slow down our lives that we can catch up with God. It's only when we slow down our lives that we can catch up with God. How can we do that? Well, one of the ways we do it is looking for strategic ways throughout your day, just like Jesus, to withdraw. Pattern of engagement, disengagement. Uh, Fruitfulness, pruning. Uh, Getting in, drawing out. The... um, the, uh, the one-minute pause that we've been teaching you is a way that I try to practice this, where certain strategic points in the day, 10 a.m., maybe mid-afternoon, I actually stop, I, I pause, I withdraw, I get by myself, and just for one or two minutes, I deep, take some deep breaths, and I say, everything and everyone I give to you. It's what John Eldridge calls benevolent detachment, reminding yourself that you can actually choose to be disentangled from the stresses and the pressures that you're dealing with, they are not yours ultimately to, to, to bear and to entrust everything back to the Lord. There's other ways, though, by simply choosing to do your work differently. Um, I, I think we might need to make some decisions about choosing to set fewer goals, um, not packing your schedule as, as much, allowing yourself to have greater margins. It might mean, liter- for some of us like me, literally going slower, like walking slower, driving the speed limit, um, Choosing to stand in the longest line in the grocery store is really hard for me. It certainly means um, being very intentional about the way that we use these supercomputers that we carry in our bodies. Uh, Because perhaps nothing has done more. I'm a big fan of technology, but perhaps nothing has done more when we use these unthinkingly to erase the margins in our lives and keep us engaged and stressed and pressurized at all times. And so there's ways that you can do this. We can choose to have certain hours in your day where you choose to put your phone in a drawer. You can strip it down, strip it of important apps, take notifications off of it. For me, I've had to take email and social media off my phone because I do not want to be a slave to the unending demands of the notifications. And so there's ways that we can order even our days differently to live in the spirit of the Sabbath. Um, Sabbath is a way of life. It's a different way of living in the world that grounds your identity and your belovedness not your productivity or your image. So that's the daily pattern. Weekly, though, and there's some controversy around this, actually, whether it's still meant to be taken literally, but I believe there's some merit in this to actually set aside a weekly day of rest. What does that mean? It means literally Sabbath means stop. That's what it means in Hebrew, the stop day. Uh, So you stop from your normal paid and unpaid work to intentionally limit your productivity in order to delight in God, others, and creation. It's like on the cooking shows. You know, on the cooking shows when like, you've got a certain set of time and they're like in the middle of making the souffle, they're in the middle of icing the cake and they're like, five, four, three, two, one, stop! You just have to put your hands up. The top layer's not iced yet, man, but I gotta stop, right? That's what the Sabbath is. It's like, man, I'm just stopping. Even if I'm, the laundry's still there, the to-do list is still there, but you know what? I am just choosing to say that God is God, and I am not, and that's okay. My identity rests in my belovedness. What do you do when you stop? Well, 
God says it's holy. And that just means, that doesn't mean you like pray all day. That would be really boring. Um, I love prayer, but I'm just saying that's not, <laughs> that's, it's called to be holy, which means it's to be different, which means special. Um, it's a day unlike any other day. We lay down the things we normally do, like make money, spend money, housework, laundry, to-do list, and we pick up things that restore. One way to look at it is it is a day not to be productive and instead is a day to be present, to be present to God, to be present to others that you love, and to be present to the world, to creation. So what nurtures your life with God? What deepens your love for others? What do you just absolutely delight to do? that you would do if all your work was done? What is restorative to body, soul, and spirit? Can you imagine just like waking up and know that the God of the universe was inviting you into a day to do nothing but to nap and walk and take a bath and eat good food and sit in the sun and listen to music and make love and make cookies and see what comes up? And this is what he's inviting you into. What a gift. The key is not to be rigid. It will mean different things for different people. You know, some of us have young children. You might have to do Sabbath shifts, right? <laughs> um, some are families. Uh, some are single. Introverts probably need to spend Sabbath time alone. Extroverts probably want to be with other people. What gives one person a lot of rest, like gardening, might give another people a massive headache. <laughs> Um, Sundays are great days to Sabbath because you're already with God's people and with God in worship, but for other people like me, Sabbath, Sunday is not a good day to Sabbath. The point is that it takes intentionality and practice because it is very hard to rest. And you will not want to. The world around you does not want to. Your phone does not want you to. And you will say, I can't get all my work done. I'll fall behind. I won't get a promotion. Yeah. Okay, so, so what? You'll be sane. You'll be obedient. You'll be living the good life. I don't have time to talk about the seasonal one, but let me just close. The Sabbath is one of the greatest pointers to the gospel. Sabbath is not just about practice, it's about a person. It reminds us of the deepest longing of our lives, which is rest for the soul. We live our entire lives trying to make a name for ourselves, working hard to be noticed, proving that we matter. And y'all, this is exhausting, it is desperate, and it is bad. And what we need is a deep rest of soul that no vacation could ever give. What we need is not found in anything that you can do for yourself, but only what God has done for you. Jesus calls himself, listen, y'all, Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest. On the cross, he cries out, tetelestai, it is finished. Jesus did all the work so we can rest. He lived, he died, he rose, he faced judgment. He did everything so that all that is necessary, ultimately and eternally necessary for our lives, is already finished. So Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. You may exchange your exhaustion for rest. You can set aside your striving, receive your belovedness in me. So that's the invitation, friends, to no longer be a slave to rebel against the oppressive forces of the world, to rebel against the inner voice of shame that keeps you driving, to lay your deadly doings down, down at Jesus' feet, to rest in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Amen.
Let's, let's pray. Lord of rest, we thank you that you have established this beautiful pattern to creation, and we're sorry for the ways that we work against it to our own harm. Some of us have our work lives backwards in which we're not working enough or we're unemployed or we're working unfulfilling work. Have mercy, Lord. Some of us are working too much and it's out of whack and there's no margins and we're exhausted and some unhealthy things are happening. Have mercy, Lord. We give our whole selves, body, mind, and spirit to you, praying that you would restore us so that we might know the good life. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.